0: welcome to the passive mobile home park investing podcast with your host andrew keel this is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100 percent passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks
1: welcome to the passive mobile home park investing podcast this is your host andrew keel and today we have an amazing guest in mr ferd neiman ferd is a mobile home park owner operator and lawyer as well as a real estate investor, financial analyst, entrepreneur, and attorney whose career has focused on a maraud of areas of real estate. His experience uh, includes mobile home park investments and turnarounds, retail development and redevelopment, residential investments, and real estate law. Before starting his own firm, the MHP Lawyer, Ferd practiced law at a top Kansas City firm focusing on economic development incentives, public finance, property tax assessments, redevelopment, land use, and zoning. Ferd, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Uh, We'll just jump right into some questions. Uh, Can you start out by just telling all of us a little about your background and and how you got into the manufactured housing business?
0: Sure. So coming coming out of college, I had degrees in finance and accounting, I wasn't sure at the time if I wanted to get into law school or not at that time. So I pursued my MBA and at the end of the MBA, I was like, well, I still kind of feel like sticking around Kansas city. Let me just punt law school for now. So I took a job at Jackson County as a commercial real estate analyst. And I looked at uh, kind of complex real estate projects with tax incentives. And in the meantime, I was also doing single family, some flips, some buy and hold uh, residential investing. And then I, I just kind of thought, man, I'm making good returns on these projects, but it was really like a good percentage return. So say 30, 40%, but it was hard to scale. I thought, man, I'm making better return than these developers that are doing these big complex projects. What kind of, what else can I look into? So I thought, well, let me start looking at uh, properties and asset classes that have low expense ratios. And I kind of came up with, through my research, uh, MHP and self-storage, decided to go the MHP route. And own oh, a little bit of self-storage is kind of just as an appendage of MHP, but really went the MHP route, started doing that on the side. And then through Jackson County, I became director of economic development, then later the director of assessment, the county assessor. And then after that, so simultaneous to that, I ended up going to law school on a part-time basis, graduated law school, passed the bar, and then left Jackson County, went to a law firm here in Kansas City, practiced law for several years, then uh, went and joined a firm client, did retail development and redevelopment for several years all while doing MHP for about the last uh, six and a half, seven years now, kind of on the side, really been doing MHP you know, really full-time in the last few years and it's been good. Um, obviously do the legal practice as well with an MHP focus, don't really do any tax incentives anymore, don't really do uh, much as far as retail zoning or things like that, really just kind of focus on MHP law and or MHP ops.
1: I love that. Thank you for that little background there. Uh, so in regards to your law firm, you know, a, a lot of our listeners are passive investors that have you know, either done funds or syndications and other asset classes and are new to the mobile home park asset class. You know, what would you say is the most important thing that passive investors need to look out for when investing in a, a mobile home park, you know, say, syndication?
0: Well, I think for any syndication, the most important thing would be look at the syndicator and then do they have skin in the game? Do they have experience? What kind of uh, track record do they have as far as accountability, transparency? But I mean, MHP specific, some of that's going to be does your syndicator know what they're doing, Uh, especially in areas of like zoning. Because, you know, as you know, you know, the grandfathered status is about all you can get in most MHPs. I mean, it's very rare you'll find a legal mobile home park that's legal conforming. So you want to get stuff that's legal non-conforming and that would be grandfathered. So really making sure that the the rights to purchase, own and operate the park are there. But most, you know, not most, but a lot of projects also have an infill component where you're gonna bring in more homes and that's really where the value add is in a mobile home park investment. And you need to make sure that you have the, the proper setbacks, the proper zoning permitting to be able to do that. So if I, was, if I was a limited partner investor in somebody's syndication, I would ask that question and say, hey, how are you going to legally bring in homes to implement the business plan? And if, you, if you're buying a stabilized asset, then that's less of a concern. But it will be some concern still that if one of these homes moves out, burns down, blows away, how can you replace that lot so that you, you don't want to buy a stabilized deal that's already at its peak of all time? And the zoning
1: is crucial to that. Oh, I 100% agree. You know, we have parks all the way from Minnesota to Georgia. And in one of our communities, actually in Nebraska, it is the hardest process in the world to bring a home in. Literally, the city inspector has to drive out and see the home, give his blessing on it. And then if he approves it, then you have to improve the home before it comes in making sure all the smoke detectors are interlinked and not battery powered and and, and a handful of other things before you can bring a home into the community and you can't rehab a home on the site because the 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 city just doesn't allow it you have to have the home move-in ready when it comes in so we have communities like that that's at one extreme end and then you have the complete opposite side where it's like the wild wild west and right. you know, they just let you—you know—you don't even need a licensed installer to install the thing. So it's just a uh, crazy how different it could be depending upon the municipality and and the zoning. So
0: right, and with one one thing there, I mean, I worked in government for five years, so I can tell you, you know, it's it's good for the developer or in this case, the mobile home park owner, to get along with the city or city county government yeah. at the same time, and maybe may behoove you to push back. I bought a park here in Missouri, and the previous owner was trying to get a business license, which is a hundred dollars. And it's pretty much a rubber stamp. And the they had a big, they called a pre-app meeting where public works, fire, water, uh, police chief, planning, zoning, long-term planning, all these people were in the room, city management. And the fire chief said, I'm not gonna approve your business license unless you put in two fire hydrants. And they had to run fire hydrants and run an eight inch main throughout the park. And I saw the invoice, it was $474,000. And the guys sold oh. me the park, they took a bath of like, I think they lost a million three. And I I went in to do the similar pre-app meeting and I went to get my business license and the fire chief said, I think, I think I'd like to have another fire hydrant. And I said, show me in the code where you're allowed to impose that on me. He goes, well, it's not really a, it was more of a request. Yeah. And he was like, I got the last guys to give me some free stuff. I was like, they literally didn't push back and paid almost a half a million dollars when they could have hired an attorney or just look it up themselves. And for 500 bucks, would have got they got that rubber stamp, so that's that was an extreme example. But I mean, it, it's it's amazing how onerous government can be, and in other instances, how friendly they can be. But in oh, the MHP totally. space, the uh, it's more often difficult than than simple.
1: Yeah, hundred percent agree. The stigma sometimes gets the better of people, and uh, they they just they can't get past that. So I I agree. It just depends on uh, who you're dealing with. So how many communities uh, do you currently own? Uh, do you actively manage them? You know how how has that process been for you? What are some of the hardest parts uh, about the business in general that uh, that you see?
0: Well, the, the hardest part. I mean, it's going to depend on the community. So we have some communities that are stable, and those are going to be you know say lower maintenance. You know, and there's like a smaller part, say sixteen or eighteen lots. I've had several of those, and then we we typically kind of say fix them and flip them. I have some that are buy and hold but sometimes when we sell them, we'll manage them third party. So in the last year or two, I've sold four parks and we still manage three of the four. And that wasn't a requirement of the sale, but it made sense for the outstate investor that, hey, we can, we can manage this and so my team can operate them. So managing stabilized parks is not as challenging from a time perspective. I'd say the hardest part is, is definitely infill. And then I like to be regional. I'm in Missouri here. I mean, Missouri, we're under contract in Nebraska, Iowa, and Missouri now and we have other Missouri and Iowa parks now. Um, I'm looking at a portfolio in Georgia, where I'm doing some work on as a lawyer and then possibly gonna end up, you know, being part of the ownership team on that. So something like that, managing stuff from a long way away. If it stabilizes, it's not as challenging, but you know, infill and just going through the, you know, the CapEx changes at the beginning, and then really the first six months of ownership is hard. So what i found, kind of what i learned in the retail business was, um, once you've got it stabilized, and retail stabilized was really safe because it was safe at least from a work perspective because they were triple net leases. People will pay a premium for them. So my business partner had built—I don't remember how many square feet, several hundred square thousand square feet of triple net retail—and I was like, okay, now he can sit back, he can relax, and just cash a big check. And he's like, no, I'm gonna sell it. I was like, why are you selling it? Because then, because some, because now it's easy. I'll, I'll, I'll sell it to somebody else. They'll pay a premium. So it allowed them to have a lean team. So that's kind of the approach we've done. I've done some deals where I'm a limited. I have uh, five or so deals where I'm a limited partner in. I've got you know, several, you know, right, a couple dozen where I'm a lawyer on. I've done some brokers work on some. Uh, generally, generally active ownership flipping. I say flipping, renovating a handful of time. And then some of those will keep forever. But I, I think I've sold, I think the last two or three I sold and I thought I'd never sell them. So um, sure. if, if the, the price is right, the workload's right, um, sometimes we sell, obviously there's tax consequences to that as well, but uh, we, we do a blend. I think the hardest part to me is just, is just the infill because there's just so much work associated, especially here in a the state, that's a HUD state, and then getting through the sales process. You know, I'm looking at one part now where it's you know, like drug issues and private sewer. And so that'll have a different set of issues where you have bad tenants or bad infrastructure. But those are more. That's not in every park. Where I feel like there's infill in every every park that's got value add.
1: Totally. Yeah. No. I I agree with you there. And how do you manage that? Do you self manage these? You, you you have a yeah, team that helps yeah, you. Yeah. We,
0: we, I, mean, I say self manage, but it's obviously, obviously I'm not a one man band. So my dad's my business partner, and then we've got several full time employees, and then we've got several. We got lots of independent contractors. Depends on the trade area. And some of them, you know, five or six of them are by full time. Full time meaning. 40 hours a week or more but mm-hmm. they're, they're on their own they can take other jobs they're independent and then we've got lots of you know third party pros like you know the, the concrete guy the install guy things like that and then in each park we either have a park manager or a park greeter and that could be somebody as low as 75 hours a month for very basic services like posting notices to i've got a manager making you know forty five thousand dollars a year um so okay. anywhere in the spectrum and then you know I'm under contract in another park in the same trade area right now where I would just basically reassign the manager. Instead of five days, one, zero, five, zero, it'll be three, two, or four, one, and then uh, go from there. But, and then we've got back office that does the bookkeeping. And we, we use rent manager for our bookkeeping and our investor reporting and stuff like that. But we don't hire a third party. I mean, my company takes the management fees, um, if you will. And then, you know, we oversee, my dad and myself really oversee
1: everybody on the payroll. Gotcha. Very cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So one thing about Missouri is that, like you said, with the new homes, it's very elaborate. It's a HUD state, you know, site prep is very important, you know, making sure the piers and stuff are the proper depth. Uh, But then the used home process is like, you know, not much regulation at all. right? Right. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. So do you guys prefer one or the other, uh, have you infilled um, more used homes or new than new or, or how does that work for you guys? Yeah. I
0: mean, for three or four years ago, I would say, man, we really were looking for used because it's so much cheaper. I mean, obviously a used home is going to be less expensive, but also because of the HUD state you're talking about 13,000 and add on between concrete install, yeah. skirting deck steps, HVAC on a used home. It's already got HVAC. If it comes with some steps or something, you're talking and that, that 13,000 does not include freight from the factory on a new home, but it, on a used home, you're probably talking two thousand bucks for all that stuff, yeah. and less, you know, on the same level of concrete piers and everything like that. So, I did prefer used homes, but practically depends on the, depends on the park. Yeah, it's so like I'm under contract on one in Des Moines. It's it's an Iowa, obviously, but it's got three empty lots. So, I'll just probably look for a used homes. I only need three. I've got another one here in Kansas City Metro. I'm under contract on that. I have like eleven empty lots. I'll probably do a combination of new and used. Mm-hmm. but another one here in missouri where i had 50 vacant lots and i was like i'm not going to be able to find 50 used homes easily yeah and i wanted to get them all i went I had a four-year business plan to fill that and it's been about two and a half years and we're full so wow. we've got wow. order we will be full here february 1st when they come in so i could not have produced 50 used homes very easily and then you need a full-time maintenance crew to get them updated and all that stuff so I've become more of a believer in the new home just because of the, the brain damage that goes into finding and renovating used homes. But it's definitely more expensive, and I, I don't like the HUD regulations anymore than the next guy. But it is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. Totally.
1: Uh, what does the perfect park look like for you? You know, hmm. what's your kind of buying criteria? What is it? Where is it located? You know what? What is the typical acquisition?
0: I mean, probably not that dissimilar from you or other people. I mean, obviously, strong metro, diverse economy, lots of different, you know, government jobs, prison jobs, education jobs, healthcare jobs. You know, ideally over a hundred lots, but those are pretty pretty challenging to find at reasonable prices. Ideally, public infrastructure, but you know, realistically, you know, I, I typically buy stuff that's kind of bruised or broken, so it'll have anywhere from twenty to fifty percent occupancy and it really not be bankable for most people. So then i buy it with a local bank loan, which is a recourse loan, which is, that's not ideal, but it's, it's ideal in the sense that a lot of people don't mess with it or can't get financed um, because they don't have ties to the communities um, where I've got some banks that are, will go and kind of a two or three or four state footprint with me. Um, right. So that's been helpful. And then two, if it has ideally big lots, I mean, if I can get, uh, you know, I didn't fill out a parking of Illinois. That we sold uh, this year, but the lots only allowed 60, 65 foot homes. Well, that that that, lo- that limits you know your business plan. Then another park where the lots are like anywhere you know, from seventy, really like seventy-six to eighty feet, so I can put lots of seventy-six foot homes in, and that seventy-six foot three-bedroom sells so much better than oh, a yeah. two. Bedroom. So that's the ideal, you know, big, big lots. You know, I mean, I don't like lagoons. I've owned Lagoon um i'm under contract on septic i'm on septic i'm on contract on a physical plant treatment plant and I've, I've not owned well i've got some clients that have wells so i've I'm, I'm been around them but i just personally don't own well I was, I'm, I'm open to it i was under contract on one in nebraska and just dropped the contract for other reasons but um yeah i mean so i you know it's kind of the same ideals as anybody as a lot of other people but i, I will tackle lower occupancy parks if they're within five or six hours of where we have a footprint.
1: What are your thoughts on park-owned homes? I think park-owned homes is just part of
0: the business. I mean, and, and in my, I tell people all the time, you know, in my ideal world, I own zero homes, but practically, you know, then maybe it's like, okay, in the ideal one, I own less than a hundred homes. You know, it's like, we're never gonna get to zero. I don't think because of the nature of bringing them in. So we we bring them in, we rent some, we rent some section eight even. We sold some through 21st mortgage, we sell some cash. Depending on the state and regulations, there's options for selling them on a contract for deed or lease owned that, that can become hairier. Um, but we have parkland homes, um, prefer not to, but it's just, uh, and it relates to financing thing. Like right now, I've got a park, I've got uh, two parks, I'm trying to trim that ratio down um, to below uh, 20 to 25%. So I qualify for agency debt. So as part of the infill strategy, I just make sure. Like sometimes I'll say, I've got five houses for sale, one's for rent. And once that one goes for rent, the rest are for sale. But then if I convert somebody, like I just closed on one today where we converted somebody from a, a renter to an owner. So I told my manager, hey, you can go rent one more. And just trying to keep that ratio, you know, in the teens, ideally. Um, but sometimes we get to, to fill the houses. It's, it's definitely easier to rent them. And I think you can do the parking model. It's just, it's harder to scale and yeah. you got to have maintenance team and, you only have six park owned homes you don't have full time Sky. if you got 30
1: well then you got enough work to keep sky busy totally agree with you and one thing that you mentioned uh is you know making your park bankable i think that's something that's very important and not enough people look at the end game first and say hey what are the agency lenders going to require they're going to require that you have less than 20% park owned homes you know and they're going to have certain requirements for off street parking etc so uh, i like that you guys are looking at that up front uh, so do you raise capital from investors do you do syndications that- I, I
0: do the last the last three parks we just with dad and me um so i don't raise capital on every deal okay um i met with somebody this morning i am going to raise capital on a couple deals i got going it really just depends on the deal and you know the amount of this the amount of capital needed and then just the total deal plan and structure but yeah i, ha- I have raised capital um, also done legal work on syndications for some other clients, and I'm, I'm under contract on at least one of them right now. I will raise capital on, and and I've got another one actually. I'm in knock on last night that is a pretty big project that I would definitely raise capital on. So I, I do it some, but I'm not. You yeah, know, not every single, not every deal, and it just yeah. You know, there's lots of different deal structures, and I don't know. I just don't always do it, um, but I I, I will, and I will in 2020 and 2020. I will in 2021. 2019. I don't think I did. I think I just um, bought two or three and just me and dad in 2019.
1: Very cool. And how do you normally set those up if you are raising capital? You know, what type of structure do you offer? Well, to- the
0: structure I mean, I've, I've looked at two different structures. Um, really, the, the main one in the industry, I think, is the, the preferred return and waterfall methods. So, for example, say if I'm the promoter, I get, you know, it typically say 35% of the deal, I get 35% as a general partner, the investors get 65%, and the investors get an 8% preferred return, which means they get the first 8% of money before I get anything. And after they get 8%, we split the, the income or their profits 35, 65, and, that, and you can split that up. I typically say it's, that's, the, that's the hurdle to split, whether it's operating cash flow, whether it's refinance cash flow, whether it's disposition cash flow. Sometimes like on one deal I took a big acquisition fee and then I take management fees of five percent, but I took the, the deal I got going, I'm gonna take a much higher split than 35%. I think I'm gonna probably take 75 because it's a really good it's, it's still gonna be good enough, it's a really good deal, it'll be good enough for the investors. And then I won't I'm not gonna take any acquisition fees, I'm not gonna take any asset management fees. And that's just a personal preference at this point, just based on income. You know, I don't I don't need the acquisition fee to pay the bills. I'm going to get taxed on that as ordinary income. So if I instead take zero fees and put, take a higher piece of the promote the, the general partnership split in the long run, it'll be better for me for a tax position. And also I feel like it's easier to raise capital when I tell investors, look, I'm signing the note. So, you know, I'm in the deal. I'm putting in my own cash and I'm not taking any commissions. Um, yeah. so that's how, that's how I, I mean, I've structured in different ways um, in the past, but, um, I'm not, I don't have 50 syndications or anything like that. I've looked at 50 different models, uh, but I have been around and seen the numerous hurdles of, you know, 8 to 10% is this percentage, 10 to 15 is this percentage for the GP. Uh, I have not done that uh, multi tier structure though.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. I know you said you sign recourse on the debt and your your investors, I'm assuming they don't have to. uh, But do you also put your own money into every deal that you raise money for?
0: I have. On um, one deal I didn't, one deal I didn't put any money in, but I signed the note. Um, but yeah, typically I put in money, but it, it depends on the deal. I mean, I so said the last few deals i put in just my own. So I didn't, it was in, in syndicate on the, the current structure with my lender. They want me to put in, it's a I don't say token amount, but say 50,000 per deal. And then I can raise the rest. If I buy the deal myself, I, let's say it's a million dollar deal. I, if I put in 200,000 myself, I don't need any partners. I can get an 80% loan. But if I syndicate, they want to give me a 75% loan, which means I need 250. So, I, so in, in that example, I'll say, okay, I'll put in 50. I'll sign the $750,000 note personally, and then I'll raise the other 200 from other people. And then there's obviously more raise for things like capital expenditures, reserves, you know, initial initial operating cash. But um, and, that, and the one that I'm working on now, I'm not actually taking a fee, so there's no acquisition fee built in, but that, that would typically be in the capital raise as well.
1: Totally. Yeah. No, I think, I think investors just like it when you have skin in the game and sure. whether that's from your acquisition fee or, or from cash, you're actually contributing. I think that's huge. Um, so what is the biggest win that you've had in the business? You know, can you give us a case study, uh, yeah. that, that was your best one to date?
0: Well, I, the one that's the best one to date is it's really, it hasn't finished yet, but it's, I got I got kind of lucky combination of luck skill and uh, the good Lord watching me, but uh, there's a deal that I have like 70,000 in. And if I sold today, I'd make a million. So uh, in, in 10 months. So the IRR on that is, you know, almost <laughs> yeah. that was a combination of off market deal, uh, broker had a pocket, pocket listing, brought it to me, bought it several hundred thousand dollars below market, Fixed it up, did the kind of lipstick flip. Didn't even increase rents at all. So I mean, it was one of those, like, didn't even need to push the rents. I would instead want to push occupancy. Uh, did a better job of a meter in the water. Uh, put in a nice playground, repaved the streets, put in some decor, put in driveways at, on every single house, including tenant-owned homes, and put, painted every single house, including tenant-owned homes. Wow. And took the occupancy from 24 out of 52 to we're now at 48 out of 52, and we'll probably at 52 in the end of the year be full and we bought it last December it was just wow. dad and me and got a hundred percent loan so put wow. except like 70k into the capex that i referenced the minimal capex that i referenced and it's just the deal's been humming and almost, i'd say pretty close to 100 percent collections uh, i got people couple people late but they always have paid we had one person bail and they immediately refilled the house and um it's been, so that's going to, I mean, that's going to be from a percentage return and then just really the amount of work I've had to put on that deal is uh, somewhat minimal um, personally. So it's, that's going to be, I mean, it's not $50 million or something, but that's a lot of money still. And uh, it's going to, it looks like, it's going to, it looks like it's going to pan out for me. So.
1: That's fantastic, man. Congratulations, dude. Nice. I love, I love hearing that. And <laughs> do you have like a, you know, a project manager type employee that helps you with your, you know, uh, capex projects and infill and things like that. Well, I mean,
0: everybody in our team does op. I say operations. Um, that park, we already we had we just hired a good manager. So that was everything we got lucky on. Uh, a Hispanic manager, and I, I speak zero Spanish, and a lot of the tenants speak zero English. And this guy is just the best. So uh, I'm not going to disclose where he's at because I don't want you to just steal him. <laughs> because, uh, as soon as we sell this park. Uh, I've already offered him a full time job. He's gonna, I'm gonna. He has a job at a factory too, and does this inside. I'm gonna say, you want to move? You know, so I'm looking for parts within an hour or so where he lives, just because so he doesn't have to relocate because he likes living in this community. Yeah. Um, so know from a, from a project manager, you know, my dad does a lot. I do a lot. We've got several other full time employees. I just just hired a CFA who's gonna help me with the underwriting because I've been busy. I've looked at. I have too many deals to look at the financials and underwrite them as well as capital raise, and then, you know, to me to do the legal stuff and, and kind of team leadership. So more of the project management will go on this new guy who's who doesn't start till the 1st of uh, December. But right now it's really just a lot of me and my dad and working
1: too many hours, but um, <laughs> it's so far so good. That's fantastic, man. I love, I love that. Um, so what would you say is like your value proposition as an operator? What makes you different? What makes you stand out? You know, I always say that our specialty is, is the infill process that is, you know, every operator you talk to, you know, says that that's the toughest part of the business. Right. Uh, so we have our own transport company based out of right. uh, St. Louis that has helped us kind of overcome that hurdle. Uh, but what what makes you guys stand out and be different?
0: Well, I would say just kind of a team effort as far as work ethic and, and attitude, and we all kind of love what we're doing. I mean, for me, my contribution as a lawyer I think helps a lot. Where i, I I say my, my biggest job duty is that I worry, and I, I worry about what could go wrong, and I worry about the worst case scenario, and I and I try to figure out, I try to basically figure out the solution, um, and then if I look for problems that don't exist yet, kind of a, a pre-mortem, if you will, instead of the post-mortem mm-hmm. exam. So I, I, that works. I mean, when I'm whether I'm you know looking at the twenty-first mortgage contracts or you know leases, waivers for you know insurance stuff, waivers for contractors dealing with the city, you know, getting zoning issues. I mean, I've been able to negotiate hard with several cities where other people couldn't and I've been able to get favorable zoning letters, which has been the difference maker for us in some of these parts to be able to bring in the right size homes and the right amount of homes. So I'd say my legal my legal knowledge helps, um, but overall it's just, um, you know, just really just stepping in the shoe, you know, signing recourse notes. I mean. Right now, my recourse notes are down, but I mean, there's, was, I was a year ago, I probably had over $10 million of recourse notes. So that makes you really watch your stuff really closely. I'm trying to, I'm in the process of moving three parks onto non recourse notes right now, because they're now at that level of stabilization. But, you know, you go to bed and worry, If this thing, I had a tornado almost hit a park. It's like, that would have, oh, I would have lost a half a million dollars last night. It was two miles over. So, that kind of stuff wakes you up and makes you pay attention. So I think that's kind of one of our, our, my value add is that I, I am uh, pretty obsessive about, you know, trying to operate as perfectly as possible.
1: Yeah, that's, that's huge. I, I like that. So what would you say has been like your biggest struggle or your, your, your one park that was like the dud? Uh, and and what were the struggles within that one dud? of a park? One
0: park, one park where we didn't do all the infill, we brought in 20, and we had fourteen left. We just decided let's just move on and sell it. And we still we still manage that park for the the current owner. But it was really just a kind of a rough and tumble town. Mm-hmm. We went through. We did like man, I don't even remember like fifteen park-owned home remodels and like over two and they were rough remodels, like over two hundred thousand dollars in cash into these deals into these homes. And it was just a rough and tumble town where. The contractors wouldn't show up to work. You'd get professional contractors. They'd give you a bid and they wouldn't show up again. They'd just what we've went through dozens of professionals, both professionals and handymen. So that was hard. And then the clientele when this park. having, there was guys, six or seven guys that had the swastika flag flying and stuff. Pit bulls running around, fights, drugs, sex offender was in the park, you know, people sneaking in. So that park just was rough, man. And we cleaned it up, got rid of the bad apples, and then renovated a bunch of these homes. But then the, the quality of the clientele they they couldn't get bankable, couldn't get loans. So then it's like, are we going to sell these cash? Are we going to rent these? It's hard to sell cash, you know. So we ended up we didn't want to buy the 20000 thirty thousand dollar house. We wanted to buy the six thousand dollar house. Well, then you're going to get at times lower client clientele there. It was just it took a lot of licks, man. It was we ended up selling it, made good money on it, but we left money on the table for the next guy. Um, and we really bought that one right and we had to replace the gas lines patch the ridge of the roads trees put in the playground um it was just a lot, a lot of capex it was yeah it was it was a lot of I mean, we spent a lot of money in the park um it didn't make didn't make a penny until the day sold it. I mean it was just you know, renovate 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 really it, it it never reached the stop and cash flow it was okay it's, yeah you know we didn't stop cash didn't, it didn't start cash flowing until we stopped doing more renovations so that one was just um you know, a labor of love, but not really much love. So that was, <laughs> it, it ended up working out, um, good relationship That's with the right. buyer and everything too. Got up, but <laughs> we got up and the deal. But that was one that I, I just didn't want to hold it long term. So that was one that was I intended to be a flip, you know, or yeah, a lot of people want to have it forever. I have some that I want to have forever, but I have, a lot where of was there. that?
1: Where was that located? In central Illinois. Okay.
0: Yeah. Near like,
1: Springfield, near Springfield, South of Springfield. So Illinois, I'm
0: from Illinois. Um, Stereotypically in the industry, I'd say once you get south of Springfield, you're basically in the south, and it's a different different environment. And you know, the lot rents, for example, were 122. This is within a half hour of Springfield. Springfield was 350. So yeah. the kind of the kind of clients that had 122 lot rents, you know, when we did want to do a rent increase, there's like we can't we can't find five bucks. You know, I was like, we just spent hundred thousand dollars improving the park time for a rent increase and they actually didn't give us too many they just didn't give, didn't give us much grief but to get the next person in there like the new lot rent right for the new people was higher we got to 180 we got to 200 within a year you know on day 366 got 200 bucks but when you add in a home payment people we're like that's almost six hundred dollars and i'm, I'm saying like six hundred dollars is that's affordable housing but they wanted to have you know 400 yeah all in you pay for maintenance all that stuff so it just the clientele was tougher as you got in southern illinois
1: yeah. No, we have a park in, uh, Keokuk, Iowa. Oh yeah, very, uh, very similar market. And, hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. You know, some markets are more depressed and you can't get as much, I think moving forward in our due diligence, something that we implemented is during our test ads, we look at and pursue, you know, how much of a down payment they have. And that has been a, a, a big teller to, you know, of the market and the people and in the new buyers. So, uh, but yeah, very very similar experience. Um, so, Ferd, what is your your end game goal? You know, where are you going to be at in ten, you know, twenty years from now? Maybe retired on a beach or <laughs> still a I, don't I don't think I'll
0: ever, I don't think I'll ever retire. Um, <laughs> I don't know what my angle is. It's always it's always changing. You know, I've changed my career several times. I didn't think I'd be in the MHP space. You know, even this long, I thought it would get bought up by all the big players and all the big REITs. And I was like, yeah, um, maybe I'll just. Uh, Fade off in the sunset and you know coach t-ball or something. But uh, right, I you mean know, over the next over the next several years, I mean the, the the goal is to continue to acquire mobile parts. Really do more than I'll buy and hold where I've been flipping them more in the last four or five years. And then cherry pick and you know I don't know if that number that I'm going to hold is going to be ten or twenty or fifty. I don't I don't foresee myself getting to a hundred. Um, but then also do some some legal services for sure on some of the bigger operators as well and smaller operators. And i I think I plan on staying in the business for a while, but I don't. I just I feel like at some point the frag industry is going to be. There's going to be ten orders, you know, ten big companies, and then I'm not going to be one of them. So um, we'll see. Um, but that, that's kind of where I feel like it's going to go. And I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be working for some big read or something like. Oh, okay, well, you've run this portfolio, and you can be regional manager of Missouri and Kansas and Iowa and Nebraska. And I don't want. A, I don't want a real job. You know, I want to. I like. Working, I like working for myself. So yeah. sure, we'll see how that looks in the
1: future. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, is there anything else that you would you know like to add value to our listeners with you know that you think they should know about uh, the mobile home park industry as as a whole?
0: The only thing I can think of is. You know, I would recommend people. You know, start slow, buy one park, buy two parts, and then actively manage them. I, I feel like I see a lot of guys now. Some of them are clients. I won't say who, but they'll they'll be like, I bought, I got three deals in their country. I'm closing on all three deals this month, and like, and none of them are within ten hours of balance. It's like, Do you have no idea how much work this is going to be to infill all these. And there's some guys buying ten parks the first year and and betting on pro forma cap rates or pro forma lot occupancy, and so just. I worry, right? So just be conservative in your in your business plan, at least out of the gate, because um, I've seen some, I mean I have bought production guys that had the same business plan as me, they just didn't implement it. And they yeah. lost they lost seven figures, you know. So it's you know, on a single deal. So just make just you know, measure twice, cut once, I guess is the is the, the value added advice I'd give.
1: Totally, totally, yeah. Experience is is very important in this asset class, executing projects, I agree. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and adding value to our listeners. Uh, How can our listeners get a hold of you if they'd like to do so?
0: Well, my my website is TheMobileHomeParkLawyer.com. My podcast is The Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. My emails, phone numbers are on there. It's it's Ferd, F-E-R-D,
1: at TheMHPLawyer.com. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thanks, Andrew. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.